Thank you very much, Alice, for that very warm introduction. And thank you all for having me here. I'm really delighted to be here and very grateful that you've invited me. And very grateful indeed that you have allowed me uh, to think a little bit more in a, a slightly different context about this really interesting question of the relationship between colonial and, uh, and European warfare. Um, as you know, uh, contemporaries uh, considered the two things to be utterly separate and without any relation to one another. There was colonial warfare and there was European warfare and never the twain should meet. Um, and that has led, I think, to an unfortunate um, uh, tendency on the, on the part of military historians to uh, avoid dealing with colonial warfare. Um, and in recent years, one notices that colonial warfare is again becoming, or actually for the first time really in an extended way, becoming a focus of interest uh, for historians. Um, but I think that the impetus for this is not so much an, an interest or a, an extension or extrapolation from the history of warfare as it is the history of genocide and looking for the, the precursors to, uh, to genocide. Um, historians have been naturally tempted to make that equation, especially in the case of Germany, which after all began the, the two world wars, is responsible for the Holocaust, and prior to World War I had engaged in at least three cases of genocide in the colonial realm. Um, Jürgen Simmerer recently um, has argued that uh, uh, this prehistory uh, in, uh, of Germany and the colonies was an important step toward national socialism. He thinks that the actions that were taken there became a tradition of the conduct of war for Germany. Um, he notes the structural similarities between the genocide of the Herero people in southwest Africa between 1904 and 1907 um, and the quote-unquote final solution. Um, and uh, the link that he sees uh, between these uh, is between earlier genocides of a lower degree of state organization um, and then, of course, the bureaucratic crimes of national socialism. Well, in order to examine um, what might have linked colonial to European warfare in the German case, um, it's first necessary to define colonial warfare. And this is where I had some really interesting difficulties when I was preparing for this talk. Um, what is colonial warfare? Uh, there, it has never been defined, and you'll see for a minute uh, after I've gone through some possible explanation or some possible uh, interpretations why that is. Um, for example, should we use it to describe all overseas warfare? Um, if we did that, we would shut out, for example, the expansion of Russia into the Caucasus or of the United <laughs> States. Um, uh, at the expense of the Amerindians. Should we call it small wars, um, which uh, would, for example, cut out the Boer War, I think, um, or even potentially the campaign in the Sudan uh, by the British against the Mahdi? Uh, the problem with the word small war also is that it lumps together a whole series of different phenomena ranging from sort of police actions on the one hand to full-scale warfare on the other. Um, should we call colonial warfare that kind of warfare that is involved in annexation, for example? Um, if we did that, we would cut out the suppression of the Boxer Rebellion at the beginning of the 20th century, and few people would want to do that. Um, could, should we think of it as 
conflicts between peoples of different skin colors or between Europeans and non-Europeans or Westerners and non-Westerners. Um, but that, too, would cut out, for example, uh, Russian expansion. It would cut out the Boer War. It would cut out the Japanese in Manchuria. And all of these things are cases where most people would agree, oh, that looks like colonial warfare to me, and we wouldn't want a definition that would cut them out. And, and I think that what we're seeing here um, is a difficulty that arises because social scientists and historians probably want to explain too many things um, by colonial warfare. Um, and at the end, I will come back to the consideration that perhaps we should imagine that colonial warfare is simply another version of warfare, um, and we should not make such a strong distinction um, between the two. But those historians who do want to make that distinction, and there are a number of good ones, um, and people are returning again and again to this problem just now, um, are, I think, making a little headway uh, in um, basically trying to settle on features of colonial warfare. In other words, they're uh, adopting a phenomenological or kind of taxonomic approach, um, which makes sense, I think. And if you do that, it seems to me there are five factors or five descriptions um, that one might take to be characteristic of colonial warfare. And I don't want to get involved in the problem if you, have, if you have four out of five, is that what it is? I'm, I'm not really interested in that, as you'll see. But this will give me a, f a foundation and basis for comparison, which is really all I'm looking for um, in the talk today. Um, these five things I take, I take it um, are the following. First of all, that colonial warfare is asymmetrical. That is, it involves a very well-organized and big power in terms of its, its ability to bring armed strength to bear against somebody who is um, really not in that league, so to speak. A second thing would be that there is a relative lack of limits to violence. Um, not in every case, but on the whole, it is more likely for colonial conflicts to slip into dysfunctional violence, especially against noncombatants, than is thought to be true of other forms of warfare. Um, and this has, there are sort of two ways potentially to think about this. One has to do with the widespread understanding at the time in the late 19th century that um, the limits imposed by international law of war on what was proper or legal or correct as a way of waging war were not thought to apply to colonies for a series of reasons which we can discuss. Um, and another way to look at this is simply to uh, look at the distinction between combatants and non-combatants and those situations in which that distinction is not made or is not made um, enough. Um, a, uh, a third characteristic <clears throat> is that colonial warfare tends to be punitive. That is to say, it has an almost police or domestic quality to it more than an international quality. A fourth would be that the violence that is used is demonstrative. That is to say, it is intended to communicate. It, does, it has a communicative function that is um, largely missing from, uh, from uh, uh, or is taken to be missing from European uh, warfare. Um, that means that violence is often done for its own sake as a method to get a message across of one sort or another. 
And a final possibility or a final characteristic um, has to do with the goal of colonial warfare. Um, and that is a concrete goal which is often very extreme. And typically it is the expunging of the political independence of whomever it is you're fighting uh, in order also to gain or take their territory. So to paraphrase a, a famous expression, colonialism is theft. Um, and it is in that regard uh, a, a has within it a kind of extremity of purpose um, that is not always characteristic in, in European warfare. Now, um, Alice Conklin has talked a little about um, Hannah Arendt, whom I revere <laughs> very much, and she was really the, the, the uh, um, writer who first postulated a direct connection between imperialism and what she called totalitarianism in her famous book, Origins of Totalitarianism, uh, in 1950. And that struck many people, and it struck me as um, entirely plausible. Um, and when I sought then to examine it more closely by looking at what I thought would be an archetypically wonderful example of it in Southwest Africa, the, the, the putting down of the Herero um, uh, rebellion uh, against the Germans, um, I discovered an archetypically normal European war. Um, for example, um, the uh, great concentric battle of uh, Waterberg um, was the Schlieffen Plan, um, modified, of course, for, for African uh, circumstances, but nonetheless, clearly the Schlieffen Plan. Um, the German military was sent out from home. Um, the uh, state of emergency was declared to put the military in, in uh charge of everything, which is exactly what happens when the metropole goes into a war. Um, the tactics uh, of encirclement, the single battle of annihilation, ruthless pursuit were identical. Um, the ignoring of logistics was typical. Uh, the trying to circumvent the um, oversight of the Reichstag was also, in, in, which didn't work, but nonetheless the attempt um, was also typical. Uh, the invoking of national security and on and on. There were many, many fundamental characteristics of the manner in which the, uh, the war was conceived and also practiced institutionally, legally, and in other ways, um, which were absolutely typically European. But that war also had um, a series of seemingly typical colonial features. The execution of most captured adult males, for example. Massacres, as at the Waterberg. The driving of women and children from scarce water to their deaths. The incarceration of whole populations, using those populations as forced laborers. Uh, the serious contemplation of mass deportation, and if we bring in another example in German East Africa that began the following year in 1905 and wasn't concluded until 1908, the burning of villages, the using of food as a method of warfare, in other words, starvation, um, and finally, of course, the end result of genocide. Now, when I'm not going to define genocide, um, but we can come back to that perhaps in the, in the question and answer. Um, but in any event, the mass killing of many, many civilians. Um, what does this mixture mean? And it is a mixture um, that where you have typically European characteristics and you have other factors that we would, I think most of us say, oh, that looks like colonial warfare. What does that really mean? Um, 
was German warfare only so extreme um, in the colonies? And what's the relationship between the two in this period? Before answering that question, obviously one would have to go, and I will do it very, very briefly and schematically, um, to look at what German warfare was like. And what I'm giving you, I realize, is a whole series of lists and that's always a little frustrating because I'm sure there are those of you who want to say, what, what about this or what about that? In, in the question and answer period, we can um, uh, handle those questions um, at, at greater length. Um, the way that Prusso-Germany, and I'm, the reason I use that expression, the Prussian army is the tradition which went into Germany before Germany was created in 1870-71. Um, and it was the Prus Prussian military tradition was by law, actually in 1867, already put into, uh, into Germany uh, against, I might add, um, the uh, vociferous complaints of the South Germans and, and others. Um, but in any event, Prusso-Germany um, fought European wars with a mass conscript army under a professional officer corps, everybody uniformed um, and entirely recognizable, fighting large-scale battles, um, abiding by the customs of European warfare as they had developed in centuries of conflict among each other. Um, uh, and in, this is true in the short wars of 1864 and 1866. In 1870-71, this picture changes, and other patterns begin to reveal themselves, and these happen in response to the guerrilla warfare that breaks out after France has actually lost the war um, in 1870, um, and raises another army and confounds German military planning, and this is now Germany, led by Prussia, but nonetheless. Um, and the pattern that you, that you find in this is rather different. Um, there you find uh, the uh, um, common burning of villages or parts of villages as reprisals, the taking of civilian hostages, the levying of huge expropriational um, uh, fines um, on cities and uh, localities, the bombardment of Paris, and actually also the contemplation on the part of uh, von Moltke, the chief of staff, of the real annihilation of France. Um, this behavior ushered in decades of European discussion about what was proper in warfare, and that ultimately leads the codification in 1899 and 1907 at the two Hague conferences of the Hague Rules of Land Warfare. And, that, and if you read those discussions, and they are fascinating, it is on the whole a discussion between Germany, sometimes with Russia, more often without it, um, and the other Europeans about what is proper. And it's an indication of how Germany has begun to, excuse me, divide, um, divide off. Um, from 1871 on then, Imperial Germany honed a type of warfare that was European in its, in its weapons, um, but fought with an intensity which was unusual in Europe. Um, it, was, it had many fewer limits um, than were true elsewhere. This is partly doctrinal or partly visible in doctrine um, with, with von Moltke the Elder and Schlieffen, for example, and it is also partly... Uh, uh, part and parcel of um, Germany's military culture. The pattern 
of what this produces in terms of practices was immediately visible in World War I from the very get-go, not after the war had gone on for some length of time and tempers had heated up, but right from the beginning. So it's not due to its length, and it is also not due to plans for annexation, which might immediately occur to one as an explanation um, for these things. The military fought World War I as it fought every other battle as an ex existential struggle according to military principles um, and uh, what it understood as the immutable nature of war altogether. And what are some of the examples of this? The Belgian massacres, which until um, recently were thought to have been fictional, <laughs> but were not. Um, the destruction, for example, in Eastern um, uh, uh, Europe of Kalish. Uh, the taking of civilian hostages, the punitive destruction of villages, the unlimited expropriation of occupied civilians' food and other necessary goods, which in the West was mitigated by the uh, Committee for the Relief of Belgium, um, something that deserves far more fame than it, um, than it enjoys. Large deportations, the incarceration of all draft-age males, ubiquitous forced labor, including for military purposes, the labeling of civilians with external markers so that you can treat them in one way or another, um, the choosing of techniques that cannot distinguish between combatants and non-combatants, uh, unrestricted submarine warfare, for example, an aerial bombardment, um, the complete replacement of the local polity and legal structures with German ones, including in places that were not slated for annexation, it's Again, it's not annexation that's driving this, but something else. The utter subordination of life to military goals and the widespread bracketing of international law in favor of military necessity. This manner of conducting war was, as far as I can tell, not imported from the colonies, from which Germany learned, in fact, very little. Um, this was developed in the European context. Um, they were lessons learned in Europe. And yet it's clear that they mimic many of the features of what we would all, I think, recognize as colonial warfare. So why is that? So let me here in the, uh, in the last part of, of this talk um, compare imperial German European warfare and its colonial, with colonial warfare, again according to those five rubrics, to asymmetry, um, to uh, um, the lack of limits to violence, the punitive quality, the demonstrative or communicative quality of the violence, and the extreme goal. Okay? And go through those. So on asymmetry. This is, in fact, a, the cre creation of an asymmetrical position is the goal of German doctrine um, in the military. Um, the idea is to concentrate as many of your forces, indeed in the best situation, all of them, in a particular spot at one time so as to overwhelm your opponent who will not be allowed the time um, or grace to get all of his greater resources together uh, in order to beat you. And the idea is to do this and to, to do it so rapidly that he's defeated before he has the capacity or the ability to actually tap his greater capacity than the one um, that you have. Um, and th this then is a, a very clear outgrowth, as Dennis Showalter has, has shown, among others, um, of Germany's unfavorable geographical position, of Prussia's smallness, 
relative to um, its, uh, its European opponents. And one might argue, too, um, it's also congruent with having too big political goals <laughs> for your ability to meet them. Um, this goal of asymmetrical warfare in this regard is largely achieved, in fact. The Germans are successful in doing this, and it's, of course, especially successful regarding smaller European countries, like, for example, Belgium, um, uh, where it's, it's quite clear um, that this is done. Um, and the, uh, the 19th century German uh, arguments that you can see in this colloquy about international law that goes from 1870 onwards um, shows the Germans very clearly arguing against those forms of warfare that would tend to throw a monkey wrench into this grand scheme of things. So, for example, um, the Germans argue very strongly against the use of militias, which is, of course, what smaller countries depend on because they don't have large standing armies, or against the levée en masse, where you actually call upon the citizenry to rise up against a, uh, a putative occupier. Um, uh, or uh, the use of, uh, of guerrilla tactics by conventional soldiers, and even taking advantage of houses or trees and the rest of this is, is somehow thought to be um, uh, a, a sign of, de of degeneracy um, on the part of, of the, uh, the Germans. And sometimes, as I said, um, on the part of the Russians, who are the other great power that has a huge land army. So sometimes, this, Jeffrey Best has referred to Germany and, and Russia as the arch occupiers, um, and it's a wonderful phrase. Uh, so that sometimes you can see that, that, um, that Germany and Russia are, um, are together on this, but more often they're actually not. The result of all of this is that, that Imperial Germany understands warfare in a very narrow way. It has a very slim understanding of what war is. And anything that deviates from that, they tend to regard as illegal and therefore as subject to reprisals. And that's an important factor. Okay, so that's so much for asymmetry in Europe. Lack of limits, especially regarding civilians and non-combatants. In World War I, Germany interestingly presented itself in its propaganda battles with um, Great Britain especially as uniquely upholding the combatant, non-combatant distinction. Um, it sort of understood itself or ex represented itself as, as the successor to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, and uh, it did this in regard to the Belgian massacres and to the, in regard to such issues as arming merchant vessels and, and things of this nature. And in fact, Germany does make the distinction between combatants and non-combatants in a stricter way than often naval powers do. Um, but the di distinction is not one of equality, much less of putting combat of non-combatants before combatants. It's a hierarchy that is the other way around. In other words, soldiers always come first. In the clash of interests, they are the ones uh, whose interests will win out. The German manual on occupation puts it bluntly, the preparedness of the field army comes unconditionally before the welfare of the rear zone. And this is why requisitions tended always in the German case to become expropriations. Um, and they were done without regard to any kind of limit that might have been required um, to keep civilians um, alive or healthy. Um, as the 
uh, Prussian finance minister said in World War I, it's better that the Belgians starve than that we do. The lest you think that there was a uh, some kind of magical line at, for example, the Rhine, um, that where this subordination um, of the non-combatants to the military um, uh, interests ceased, you would be wrong. Because the essence of the Hindenburg program of 1916 um, was precisely to conscript all German adults, and we're going back down to the ages of people of 16, um, and subordinate all of them to the military effort. And those people who could not contribute to the military effort were going to starve. Okay, so the German military is an equal opportunity um, <laughs> destroyer um, in, that, in that regard. In terms of lack of limits, this other issue besides the split between non-combatants and combatants is the one about international law. Um, and uh, as I've said, the uh, Europeans um, thought uh, of international law as applying only to themselves as being part of the customs of warfare that had grown out of their having fought with one another for centuries. Um, and they therefore applied only to, quote, unquote, civilized nations. Um, the interesting part of the development of international law in this period, or one of their many, but one of the most interesting ones, is, however, that by the end of the 19th century, there is already discussion that this isn't correct, that international law ought to apply to co colonial wars under certain circumstances, and some of these people who are arguing for this are even inside the militaries um, of Great Britain, for example, um, and others. The Reichstag, for example, voted that, that international law should apply uh, in Germany's colonial um, campaigns. But within the German military, and as I have found out in the past research I did last summer in the foreign office, the German foreign office, um, a different idea of international law reigned, and that was an idea which essentially bracketed it whenever it came into conflict with military necessity, or I moved to say putative military necessity. And that would tend to happen in exactly those arenas where non-combatants would be most likely to suffer. And so there is a way in which while international law might generally have been said not to apply to the colonies, if you listened to the German military, it also didn't apply in extremis to Europe. What about the punitive aspect? This is actually one of the more striking um, aspects of German occupations. And here I'm going to speculate about the probable sources. This is the kind of thing that's really hard to pin down with, um, with any exactitude. It strikes me that among the things that tends to cause the German um, occupational forces to be especially punitive vis-a-vis -vis, uh, particularly non-combatants comes first of all from this narrow view of the nature of real warfare um, and uh, the idea th that, that it cuts out so much of armed action that other European states find okay and the Germans don't find it okay and therefore the people who are doing this are criminals. Okay? A second aspect 
of this same problem is the much more highly developed standards of order, which come from Germany's, the preponderance of Germany's military, I think, inside Prussia especially, and then extended to Germany on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's very, very finely and densely developed bureaucracy. Um, the Germans have a very much higher understanding of what order and proper behavior is on the part of civilians in an occupied zone. Civilians invariably fall afoul of these rules and therefore, again, are criminalized in the way in which Foucault wonderfully described in relation to sexual legislation um, and so on. They are, in fact, there is a, this, the, the more, the higher your understandings of order, the more rules that you have, the greater criminalization occurs. And that is, is a, a clear feature of, of um, the German occupations. Um, a third factor might be the German interpretation of international law that says that German law replaced native law immediately. And this Germany is the only country that, that, um, that says this. And that meant that, that people who were, were uh, in the occupied zones didn't know what the law was. They weren't German, after all. Um, and this, again, goes into the criminalization um, problem. There is fourth also a very strong readiness on the part of um, the guys who are running the, uh, the rear zones to use the excuse of scofflawism to help them raise forced labor and to expropriate. Um, and that is also very widespread. The high status of the German military is another reason. Um, and although all militaries have a high status insofar as they represent the state and authority, in the German case, they, it could, is not too far to say, are the state and the authority. That's the way it was meant to be. That's why Germany was unified in 1870-71. So that when you fall afoul of the military, you have committed les majestés against the state. It's a much more serious kind of an issue than it is, than is true in other um, militaries. And indeed, it finds expression in the unique German um, uh, legal military term war treason. And that refers to um, people in the occupied zones who aren't behaving right, <laughs> um, who are behaving like civilians, basically. Um, and possibly uh, this punitive quality goes back to the Prussian tradition, especially strong since 1815 down to 1864, of using the Prussian army primarily as a police tool and not, in fact, against an external enemy. That was very common, and of course the grand um, success was in 1849 against the, the uh, German re revolutions um, uh, of the liberals and Democrats. Um, but uh, it continues down to um, uh, the, the uh, creation of Germany, after which it more or less stops. I've read a study which finds there are only eight examples of it from 1870 to 1914. Nonetheless, they are busy honing plans all over the place. And these are rather famous um, when were, were discovered in the archives a number of years ago. So that the, the idea that the Prussian army, now the German army, um, isn't maybe even primarily to be used against a foreign enemy, but against a domestic enemy is very, very well entrenched um, and I think plays a role in all of this. 
Um, and finally, one has the, a, a particular method which, which struck contemporaries strongly in the colonies and in Europe in the war, uh, in the World War. And that is the use of whipping or beating as a manner of demonstrating authority. Um, uh, that is ubiquitous in the occupied zones in Europe. Fourth, the demonstrative exemplary use of violence as a communication. This aspect was known even in 1870 by the term terrorismus. Terrorismus refers to the use by the state of exemplary methods of violence in order to get um, uh, non-combatants to comply. Moltke uses it this way, um, for example, and it's only later that it comes to apply to the other way around, non-state actors who are terrorizing um, uh, a state. Um, and that comes from Prusso-Germany's, I think, relative weakness um, as compared with its military goals of complete, quick, final victory in a single battle um, of annihilation. Terrorism, after all, is a technique, and techniques are, are meant to increase your power, and that's what this is all about. Um, and it's very visible in Germany's uh, definition of effective occupation, which was a major point of contention um, in uh, the um, uh, uh, discussions of international law after 1871. And there is another issue that is connected with this, and that is the extent to which it might be said that in the Kaiserreich there is a way in which might has somehow replaced authority. If by authority we understand a, the legitimacy that comes with a kind of consensus or in any of the various ways that it might come according to, for example, Max Weber. Um, Bismarck's enemies, after all, always said that he believed that might equals right, and he said they were wrong. He didn't really believe that. Um, but uh, it is clear that the... German government, both under Bismarck, but especially after him, he uh, was forcibly retired um, in 1890, lacked the legitimacy that comes from popular sovereignty because Imperial Germany wasn't based on popular sovereignty. It was a compact among princes. And there is a tremendous amount of anxiety in the Imperial German government, which people overlook to their peril, uh, that in fact everything is going to hell in a handcart, that they do not enjoy for example, the support of socialists or Catholics or whomever or South Germans, even if they were Protestant, and on and on. And there is a great temptation to use violence as a way of demonstrating that you do too have this authority and that you do too have the legitimacy to act. And that is, of course, a temptation which is flattering to the military because they are the wielders, the expert wielders um, of force. Uh, and this necessity, I think, um, is actually made a virtue of by various ideologues, most famously the Pan-Germans, um, but others too. Uh, and uh, the famous, many of you will know, the, the famous Professor's Manifesto of October 1914, which responded to British charges of German militarism by saying, yes, by God, we are militarists, <laughs> and, and making a, uh, a virtue out of this and actually I identifying it as an essential characteristic of Germany, which it was not, but um, that was uh, a, a happy thought um, by those driven into a corner on that. And finally, the extreme goal. As I've said, the extreme goal in colonial warfare is that you're busy 
annihilating the political independence of an entity and grabbing their land, goods, bodies, whatever. That's about as extreme as you can get, and that kind of extremity, no one is going to agree to that, and that means you can't have a negotiated end to, the, to a, a war which is on that basis. And that means violence will continue, and it will widen, and so forth. This is, is clear in the colonial case. In the German case, and again the German military case, we're not looking at annexation in this way. What we're looking at is the extremity comes from a different source. The source that it comes from is this understanding of what constitutes victory. It's a very, very much more stringent and narrow understanding that encompasses only absolute total victory done quickly, demonstratively, and completely. And when it is done, there is nobody left with a gun who can, has anything to say against you. This is a much higher standard than any of the other European armies present. It is unique in this regard. Um, and it has nothing to do with future considerations of a political, economic, or, uh, or other kind um, of nature. And it's, it's quite remarkable how many historians are unable to distinguish this very strongly military understanding of, of extremity, or this, this impetus toward extremity on the one hand, and annexationism on the other. And you can see this in the writings of many people in World War I um, who overlooked the fact that uh, Falkenhayn, the chief of staff until August 1916, and even Ludendorff and Hindenburg down to um, 1916, late 1916, don't in fact have huge annexationist goals in mind. And when Ludendorff does come out in favor of huge annexations, why does he do it? Does he want the territory? Does he think Germany needs the territory? Well, not really. What he thinks is it's the only way you can spur Germans on to greater sacrifice. He uses it totally instrumentally. Um, the same thing might be true of, of Leto Forbeck um, in German East Africa during World War I. He wasn't interested in holding on to German East Africa. He was interested in pinning down as many British troops as he possibly could to keep them off the Western Front. And that is completely typical. And that, by the way, really was a kind of total guerrilla war um, uh, about which more needs to be, um, to be written. Okay, in, in conclusion, um, elsewhere I've talked about military culture and, and the role that that plays in this, and I, I don't want to go into that, at least in the, in the paper. I do want to say that, to reiterate what I have written in the book and which gets lost, um, and naturally so if you focus on Germany, and that is that the propensity to to Pursue violence to dysfunctional ends is, I think, very central to all militaries in this period, all Western militaries. Um, and Germany represents an end of a spectrum, um, uh, and it is, is clearly part um, of a, a larger family. Um, it differs, I think, only in kind um, and for historical, political, and organizational um, reasons. And for those reasons the hindrances to extreme warfare were lower for Imperial Germany. It was easier for it um, to, uh, to go over um, uh, in the end. Racism is another such um, lowering, hindrance-lowering thing. 
Um, and it is, has been, I think, um, overemphasized by um, uh, many writers, and I understand why. Um, but it has been my attempt to try to get people to think about other possibilities uh, in, of a structural nature um, that might move a military to ju jump these hurdles uh, and to become dysfunctionally violent. If I were to return to the list I previously gave of, of typical colonial methods um, that the Imperial Germany used in Africa, um, there are really only two that stand out as different in Europe. They're important, um, uh, but there are only two of them. And the first is that adult males were not executed in World War I. Um, they were incarcerated. They didn't used to be incarcerated, although that uh, I believe is a, uh, an action that France took in 1870 already, and that's France started that one, and then Germany went on down. Um, uh, but um, So that's, that's one thing. The conditions, of course, in which they were held um, were not great, and in fact, um, the, there are, uh, are numerous deaths, but nonetheless, that wasn't the object, really, of what was going on. And the second thing, of course, is that genocide on the European continent is avoided in World War I, I think largely in the West because of the Committee for the Relief of Belgium. And I have several examples where German policy um, is being discussed and it, the, uh, um, the possibility that the Allied response to that will be to disallow the Committee for the Relief of Belgium to work and uh, in no case does Germany step back from the policies that it is contemplating doing? And in fact, the Allies don't do it. In the East, where there is no such committee for the relief of Belgium, there is very widespread death. There's widespread death also in, uh, in the West, but, but there is much more widespread death in the East, and we still don't really know what the extent of that was. Um, that's something that, that we really um, need to, to um, look into. But, of course, there was a genocide in World War I, and it was in the Ottoman Empire. Um, and the Ottoman Empire, as you know, was a, an ally of the Germans, and Germany um, came into uh, the problem of having to speak for its ally on the world stage against those who, who um, uh, opposed the genocide. And it didn't defend the genocide, um, but it didn't... Uh, um, uh, try to stop it as, an, as a, uh, there were individual Germans who did, but the German government really did not, um, with maybe the, the exception of one ambassador on his, off his own bat who did it. But the f official German government's line is very revealing, and that is that, un that genocide is an unfortunate thing, but that in this case it was militarily ne necessary, and therefore it had to happen. And that speaks volumes, I think, for where um, the government is um, on that subject. The one colonial institution that I can think of that really did make it back from the colonies to the European continent was the concentration camp. Um, this was, of course, not invented by Germany. Um, uh, it was invented by Spain, but it is a military invention, and it is a place where you collect civilians and sort of barb wire them off extracting them out of the uh, areas of guerrilla warfare so that you can hit with more extreme methods um, the guerrillas against whom you are fighting. The notion of collecting 
civilian populations in large camps does come back, and they are called concentration camps. The same word is used. Um, when Herbert Hoover, the uh, head of the Committee for the Relief of Belgium, uh, takes a little trip through uh, occupied northern France in 1916 or 17, he says, quote, the whole place is a gigantic concentration camp. And, and that's what he means by that. So th there is the one case where I think it's really fair to say that a colonial institution has really come back to haunt um, Europe. The other colonial methods um, um, uh, that uh, um, are common to European warfare as the Kaiserreich waged it um, are much more numerous. Massacres under certain conditions, um, the taking of, of necessary food and other things from women and children, which is to say just from non-combatants. Um, in the case in the Southwest Africa, it was water. In Europe, it was food um, and, and clothing and other things. Uh, the incarceration of whole peoples, the using them as forced laborers, mass deportation, burning villages, using food war, all of those things are used in World War I. Um, they are all common to European war. Um, and they are not things that are, as I've argued, are coming from the colonies. Um, they're, they're developing out of other things. This pattern, it seems to me, um, means that we should accept colonial warfare as a variant of warfare, um, that we should not erect, in my view, false uh, walls um, between the two. And I would suggest to military historians that it would be best to include colonial warfare in the usual studies of war um, and to realize that the treatment of others is often very much closer to the treatment of ourselves than we like to think. Thank you. So I'm happy to entertain questions or Responses, yes. Um, I want to try and rescue Hannah Arendt just a little bit. Um, I'm always happy to have Hannah Arendt rescued. <laughs> um, there, there seem to me to be sort of two moments in, in origins in relation to this. One is the, the, the connection that you, that you so successfully critique, which is that things learned in the colonies were brought home to Europe. But the other is a kind of analogy, uh, which is that what really um, uh, was the problem with the Nazis from the point of view of other Europeans was that they treated Europeans like the British or the French might have treated colonials. Um, and that leads me to the question which seemed to emerge, the comparative question which seemed to emerge from this is that um, other European armies behaved differently when they were fighting Europeans than they did in the colonies. And I think it's particularly the British or the Americans or the French who go you know, ape if they're in India um, but are relatively Sure. Um, the, the, the first thing I say, I would, I would rescue Hannah Arendt in a somewhat different way and say that I, th that I think that what she has shown is that on the ideological level that imperialism is absolutely required. If you subtract imperialism from European history, you can't get national socialism. So, and I think she, that's nailed down and I'm, I'm on board for that. It was about practices and institutions and how they get there that was really my, my, my question. But, but your point about um, the other Europeans, 
in the colonies is a very good one because, in fact, um, the colonial uh, campaigns um, are often really horrendous, um, and uh, they um, will verge on genocide, um, and they're certainly extreme, and they don't know when to stop, and they are, you know, especially when they've done things, they're filled with sort of racist explanations about why they've done it and, and so on. And that, I think, is, I think there is something about the colonial project that encourages that. I think that there's something about the, the military um, job that flows right into that, and imperialism is military. It's a, it's a, when, you, when you are finished, you know, sending out your traders and you want to do something else, then it becomes a, a, a military thing and, and, and then you, you do that. Um, and I think that, that it would be um, a, a very interesting book that nobody, you know, sort of to do what I did for Britain and France and, and nobody has yet that I'm aware of really done that. Um, that they, again, tend to look only at the colonial campaigns and what one notices there, for example, is this, that you typically these Britain and France have colonial armies. They have real colonial armies, which Germany didn't have. Um, and they, so they have maybe one tradition in the, ar in, the ar in the army at home and another tradition in the, in the colonies. And there have been arguments about, for example, what aspects of élan and flexibility are brought back by the French colonial army back in Mongin and, and, uh, and so forth in, in the First World War, Lyotet and, and other guys, um, and, and things like this. Um, uh, but it, it really, um, it, somebody really should sit down and, and do it uh, and, and really do the work. And what I have seen is that, because uh, I, I did do a lot of reading in this, but it, I, what I didn't do was the archival research for it, so I'm not... You know, so I'm an educated newspaper reader <laughs> on this. But what, what I'd say is, is that what you see is some, a, a series of behaviors in the co colonies that are more circumstantial, um, that, that uh, sometimes they go overboard, and, and particularly they do when they're frustrated, when they have not, they've set a goal and they can't reach it, and the fighting doesn't stop, or the people get together and they do it again, like with the Chosa and, and things like this. And, uh, and what happens typically in the metropole is they'll let this go for a far too long period, and many, many people die who shouldn't have died. At some point, the metropole will pull the plug on this and say, stop. In the German case, the metropole really can't do that um, as, as well for, for political reasons, basically. It can't do it. But it's still, that still doesn't answer your question about to, to, you know, the, the, the different manner in which they, uh, in which they fight war. One, one of the way in Europe, one of the interesting things, however, is that they're busy importing their colonial troops raised in the colonies and bringing them to Europe to fight, which the, causes the Germans to go crazy. Um, and the Germans then say, you are treating us like colonials because you're using black troops against us and, and on and on. And there's a huge um, big to-do about that, which is that's a, that argument I found out in the archives um, this, oh, in December, um, is actually uh, comes from the German military, makes that argument first. And the foreign office says, huh? 
and and then later on adopts it. Um, um, but that but it's interesting that they you know that 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 in that re- that is something that would have to be factored into the question, and I would put it as a question: H- How different? Is there treatment, and under what circumstances, and, and why? And that really, I don't think anyone has done the systematic work to answer it. Yes? Um, so referring to those five points that you made about colonial warfare, and just to finish the definition of colonial warfare, and I think they're very helpful, but what struck me was that there's so many similarities with those five points and the way modern states down to our day, modern states down to our days deal with insurrection or civil war, yes. sectarian strife. I mean, many examples. The example that I know quite well is the situation with Kurds, for example, in southeastern Turkey or in Iraq, right? You make an example, you requisition the available foodstuffs, you drive people out of their villages yep. if you have to, and you keep the press and uh, human rights associations away from. So how do we define colonial warfare? And, I mean, do we also make a case for all civil wars and sectarian strife that are outside the purview of Geneva Conventions or something to be almost colonial? Or do we use that for, for that kind of definition if you want to define it? I would like to just to take war, okay, and, and leave it as an expansive kind of thing and not make the... I, I basically think that you can't make these distinctions, okay? Um, and what you say is absolutely right, that in the period since 1945, the kinds of wars that we've had have tended to occur um, either within the boundaries of a state or with proxies in an uncertain cir- circumstances and have uh, involved guerrilla wars and, 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 uh, and so on, and civil wars and, and, and other things like this. Um, which are all variants of w- kinds of, of, of wars, um, uh, which you know fall under the, uh, the uh, a, a larger category, which I'm at this point at least not willing to have everything fit into a little box um, in in that regard. One of the interesting things, however, is that people have realized exactly the point that you've made, um, and that is that since 1945, those kinds of conflicts. Um, with very large non-combatant casualties seem to be the order of the day. Um, And there was an attempt in 1977 to put those under the purview of international law. And that makes really interesting reading because on the one hand, the new states of the third world were very happy um, to have uh, uh, guerrillas join under certain circumstances the... Um, uh, those covered by the Geneva Conventions and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, they weren't very happy at all about the possibility of extending international law to cover the, com- the non-combatants there, which is what the Western powers were actually pushing for. And those, it's the, 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 that argument makes very, very interesting reading where you can really watch what the specifically understood interests of a newly emergent state are, which which is to legitimate the way that it that it rose to power, but to keep down the possibility that you know um, and and so forth. And so, if you wanted to broaden all of this, um, one way that one might do it would would be to to um, to be very very particular in the observations that you make about the war, and very very particular in your observations about the kinds of state and the institutions in them that are doing it. And I think that that would be a, a much 
better, more fine-grained way of doing it than trying to make from the beginning a, a, a distinction that, that this is a civil war. Well, as we've seen in Iraq, when when is a civil war a civil war? You know, is it, is it did that happen in July or in October or you know? Um, and and if you instead take a look and try to identify who the combatants are and what what their tactics are and what their relationship to which kinds of states are and what kinds of states you're talking with, you'd be a lot farther on rather than, I think, trying from the beginning to siphon stuff into definitions that I just don't think, at least the way I've looked at it, they just don't seem to work. They don't seem adequate to, to the task at hand. So... Sorry to be sort of phenomenological there, but I, I think that you know the phenomenology is a good thing if if you're lacking data and you're <laughs> and you're in a quandary, and I think that's where we are. I think we're in, in, in sort of a mess. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. was saying that they use the same methods like a concentration camp to support, but then uh, he mentioned that the Germany didn't el- el- use them after the First World War. So basically, this is his argument, which links uh, colonialism and Holocaust and Shabbat. But I um, know that many scholars have tried to connect these issues, and one of the arguments is that when you compare it with colonial legacy in Germany, it's many scholars who are who occupied the like race theory, organic social Darwinism, and I think that's how kind of linking because it's the whole issue of social superiority. And I mean in that time I they would come up with the term like Vermigerung, you know, like the uh, somebody the German settlement living in Southwest Africa and they are uh, trying to persuade that uh, stay away from because they they are Well, as, as I said in response to the first question, I think that the argument that con- connects imperialism to the Third Reich is best made on the level of ideology, where I would also put racism, okay? And I, I think that's, there's no question about that, um, and, and I have absolutely no problem with that. The problem comes when you try to, when you ask yourself, under what circumstances does anybody actually follow an ideology? They may say they believe in it, but under what circumstances do they actually do it? And there, social science is quite fascinating because if you understand ideology as a belief system, the findings of social science are that people don't act on their belief systems. They don't know why they act, actually. They don't know why they choose what they choose. 
Um, and I take that, liter it's a very large literature and it's really interesting and I take it quite seriously. Um, uh, one can look at one's own life, for example, and look at all of those ca cases where you, know, you have not really done what you ought to have done um, and so on and so forth. So clearly the ideology and the other problem with the racism argument is that all the Europeans are racist. So, but they didn't all do the, do the, do the Holocaust. Now, they, many of them collaborated with it, but they didn't think it up, and they didn't invest all of their, their gotten goods in order to do it. They didn't, for example, rate it higher in winning the war effort than, than, uh, um, uh, than, than, than doing the war effort. And so there's clearly some difference there. And the, what I think happened is, is this. The, Rate, and actually, I think that there are, are there are, are several strands of racism. One of them is anti-Semitism, which is relatively separate from the other forms of racism. I think uh, has a separate history and a separate uh, typography and a, and a, a separate um, uh, sort of um, genesis, and is carried by separate institutions. And then there is the racism that includes anti-black racism, but is much bigger than that, and and is much more diffuse and um, also has a, a long history, but not nearly as long as anti-Semitism has, or anti-Judaism, if you want to call it that. Um, and those develop along, and actually they develop sort of side by side, but they don't come together in Germany, at least, until the 20th century. Um, and you can watch that happen between like 1903 and 1908, um, where, they, where they are joined together for very specific reasons, and they come together in the Pan-German League, you can watch it happen, and it's quite fascinating. Um, and so that's juggling along, but what is not happening, what you require, in my view, in order actually to do a genocide on the, uh, of the caliber and breadth and depth of not just the Holocaust against the Jews, but the 2.5 million Poles and the 3.3 million um, Russian prisoners of war and on and on and on. This was an enormous undertaking. Um, in order to do that, ideology won't work for me all by itself. And what I think happened, and this is purely speculation, is this, that in World War I, the phenomenon that I've been explaining and that I explain further and somewhat differently in my book um, became the lived experience of many, many people. And the, the, in the course of the war, the behaviors that go along with these practices and became, um, sort of achieved a life of their own. And when Germany lost the war, they become, became cut off from the military. They became autonomous. They became ready to be, and we could use the word, famous verb that George Mossy uses all the time, annexed by the Völkisch movement, which already had had put together anti-Semitism and this other larger forms, more diffuse forms of racism. And now what you had was a series of ways to behave, ways to identify as a male, um, ways to, to conceive of your place in the world, things really to identify with in your own body. That's what you needed in order to get to the the quote-unquote, final solutions, I would say, um, so quickly in the Third Reich. And ultimately, you needed war to do it. And that's why Hitler begins the war. Hitler doesn't start the war in order simply to take territory 
or Lebens or simply Lebensraum. The, he needs the war because the war is the thing that revolutionizes Germany in the way he wants it revolutionized. And it's only when you create the existential situation in which it's live or die, you are kill or be killed, that you can produce those the 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 blonde beast that you that you want to produce. That's what I think happened. And if you if you you need to look at that on many, many different layers. And I, I, we know best about ideology because, quite frankly, it's far easier to find out about than anything else. The texts are there. You can go to the library. You don't even have to go to the archives. Um, and there, there it is. You can do it. But if you, if you actually look at practices and institutions and behavior, that's, that's harder to do. And we need a lot more of that. I mean, you notice I stop right at 1918, um, right when the war ends. The really fascinating thing comes in the Weimar Republic, not even in the Third Reich. It's in the Weimar Republic and how that operates and the rest. Actually, people haven't looked at what happens to military culture. It's only now being looked at in the Weimar, in the Weimar period, and it's really fascinating. Um, but that's, that would be the, the way that, that I would see that. So I think that Jürgen Simmerer, um, you know, in a, in a way is running through an open door. We have the, the ideological thing we know. We can always find out more about it because, of course, the Third Reich is eminently ideological. I'm not <laughs> arguing that it is not. It is clearly driven by ideology, but that's not enough. You have, there has to be a lot more going on there or you couldn't have done it. You just couldn't have done it. It's too big. Yes? Um, I, I certainly agree with many of your particular observations about the German army, particularly its legalistic, human legalism, which I think is essential to understanding the behavior of World War II. But I cannot help but feel, at least as, as, I, as I understand it today, that your characterization of the German military evolution in this period as an aberration uh, in the context of European military culture uh, is perhaps backwards, in the sense that it is not uh, unusual, rather it is, it is a return to the mean, uh, I mean a regression to the mean, a return to the normative behavior in terms of how European wars are conducted, that the relatively antiseptic wars of the 1860s are themselves the exception, that basically romanticists have codified the law in terms of international law, that uh, and if Germany is an aberration in this context, it is because it is returning to, the, to, the, to this mean, to this barbarism, quickly than the other European powers. And there, in this case, I can't help again to feel that colonial warfare is the reason those powers are less savage, are less ready to return to the mean, precisely because Germany is thinking in terms of absolute destruction because of the enemies it faces, France, Russia, and others, whereas the other countries, in fact, have a vacation from absolute destruction <laughs> because they're fighting asymmetrical wars mm -hmm. against native powers, which while have, they have great influence on technical doctrine, no real influence on That's a very lovely argument. Um, I, I like it a lot. Um, what I guess I'd, I'd say about it is that I am not sure that there really is the mean that you're talking about. Um, I, I see warfare as operating very differently in different circumstances. It's certainly true that if you return to the Napoleonic um, period that you're, you're, you, know, you, you can 
pick out the Napoleonic period. You can do the Seven Years' War, which is also really horrendous. Um, uh, you can go to the Thirty Years' War. You can go, um, you know, you can pick out things. But yet, not all wars were like that. If you go through and you know do a count, you'll find them sort of scattered. And the and the interesting thing, therefore, to me is is therefore not that there is uh, some kind of uh, a pure nature of war. That, but that, that I, I agree with Clausewitz that, that war is, is a, a, uh, a, a very, it's a complex thing in which many variables come together. And those variables differ from circumstance to circumstance. And so you really have to look at that. Um, but if, if one takes um, sort of the, the, it's certainly not impossible to make the argument that you have made and other people have made it and have basically said that, that what you see in, in international law in the last part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century is, is a, a, an, an idealistic uh, um, attempt to freeze an aberration, um, basically. Um, I see in the longer term of, of the international law of war, uh, something a little different, and that is that I don't see necessary progress towards some telos. Um, but instead, what I see is the precipitate out of a series of conflicts that inevitably are different um, and which sort of... Um, sich ausmendeln, you know, they kind of, they go like this, they go like that, they, you know, here it tips a little bit like this, a little bit like that, a lot depends on who wins at any given point, um, uh, and, and on and on. And so that what you're, what it is, is I see it as simply a process. I don't know where it's going. I don't know where it will end. Uh, it shouldn't actually have an end. Because what, it's all about what we do to each other and what we find works for us and what we, the compromises that we reach in the, in the pursuit of our different conflicting interests. Um, and those things, it seems to me, continue to go on. That it is, the, the real aberration is when you have a situation in which there is no give and take. There's only thump and somebody is totally wiped out. That's really unusual in, in the history of warfare and in the history of civilization. It happens, but it's unusual. Um, and it seems to me you need to explain that particular. Um, and and it, Germany is an especially, modern Germany, is an especially striking case of this because it ends in suicide. And that's always fascinating to me, anyway, um, when a, 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 an entity actually sets everything up for an either-or situation and actually really genuinely accepts the possibility that it itself will be annihilated and goes for it. Wow. That's, that's striking. And that's what I'm seeing um, and what you don't see anymore um, in Germany. Those, those things are over. Um, but that's, yes, that, right, for, for time anyway. <laughs> yes. Let me uh, offer you something which may fit your model. I, I don't spend much time in the 19th century, the 20th century, but I find it. I do live a lot in the 16th and 17th century. And one of the things that all the colonial wars have, and only some of the European wars have, is reciprocity. The Europeans abroad 
are always asymmetrical, the, uh, the word that you use. And in some cases in Europe that happens too. Um, sometimes it's uh, uh, a circumstance, the fall of a town, in which suddenly one group wins and the other just disintegrates. Moments like that, you will get annihilation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, you can use religion. Religion is great for that. You know, Catholic, Protestant, Jews. You can work out uh, a way in which they are totally uh, uh, defenseless, and then you don't have reciprocity. So you can kill them all. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't often happen in European wars. It does. So there's your difference, perhaps. Whereas in colonial wars, it's always the case. Is it very different in the 20th century? In Europe or in the colonies? Well, Not in the, in the sense that, I mean, I th the, the issue of reciprocity is, is one that interests me very greatly because it is at the heart of what the, of the German understanding of, of international law. And when they feel that reciprocity is not actually exact, then they are prepared to throw off the whole, the whole business. And it's also clear um, that reciprocity uh, is is in some way at the heart of the way international law moves forward or has been until until very recently. So I take that point very well. And I also think that you're that you're quite right that under in circumstances in which uh, it's possible to have no reciprocity um, or to imagine that there isn't, then you can in fact, you, you are setting up a situation in which it would be much more likely for you to go to the wall um, and, and get rid of folks. And I think there are other things that will, that, that probably um, um, uh, sort of play into this. Um, but on the whole, if the question is, is the 20th century really different from these other centuries in the sorts of vi the, the various principles that operate in the complexities, no, I don't think it is. I think that what's different um, is sometimes with weaponry and the amount of force and stuff like this, but not actually the real things that are going on. I would agree with you there. Mm -hmm. Yes? There's a, I wish I could remember her name, there's a woman who is working on this, a really interesting uh, uh, account in Russia, um, and her argument is the 1880s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the uh, assassination of Alexander II, and, and even there's an earlier assassination attempt on somebody. Um, and uh, her argument is that if you look at, like Joseph Conrad, you know, you can see that all in him, and you can watch him reflect on that. Um, and the um, uh, so that it's it's part and parcel of a manner of understanding state power and the its its relationship to um, uh, repression and and uh, and um, uh, opposition um, that is characteristic of. Uh, the last part of the 19th century, basically. Um, and her, her book is going to be really 
I should explain to you how I know this, and I'm embarrassed not to be able to think of her name, um, but I can never do that. Uh, <laughs> um, I sit on the the board of uh, Cornell University Press, and her book is going to appear with Cornell University Press at some point. She has to other revisions and stuff, but anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and it's it looks strictly at, at the Russian context, which is not a bad context to look at because, of course, they do have, you know. A, but, but if you look at the assassination attempts also um, uh, in, uh, um, in Germany against um, Bismarck and against William I in, in the 1870s, you find the same language, the same shift beginning to occur. So it's right in that, it's in that period. Uh, David? Given such a complex and nuanced explanation of this, I almost hate to throw out one more thing, but did they, <laughs> did they um, engage in any kind of attempt to classify the population, any sort of population politics? You know, the type of thing that you actually do see in the colonial context or, for example, in Russian context, uh, with this whole field of military statistics that developed in the 19th century where yep. different people within the empire are classified. And that is actually, in many ways, They engage in it, but not nearly. They're not nearly as good on the geographical and territorial things as the as the Russians are. I guess they sent all the their experts over to the czar. <laughs> um, the, they have, for example, they they do the typical colonial um, kind of thing of uh, martial races, and they have they have a kind of typology of that um, uh, it for Africa, for example. Um, individual commanders do make those distinctions, and but they make them along lines that are really pretty mundane, which is can you work, can you not, is somebody a prostitute or not, so they get rid of them, um, and uh, and, and stuff like this. So they, they, they do do it, but they don't do it systematically. And I have not come across, although, you know, who knows, um, that there's nobody that I'm aware of in the quartermaster general's office who's busy really kind of nailing this down um, uh, in that way. And uh, if I think of those kinds of typologies, I would have to think that probably the first place you really get those is probably with the eugenics campaigns in the Weimar Republic, um, I would think. You don't agree with that, Carol? No? That's true. That's true. The ethnic. Yes, the ethnic. The ethnic thing. That's right. That's that's absolutely right. They are doing that, um, and um, uh, and that's an important. That's a, a, a very important thing. Um, Pardon me. Between. On the basis of Jews, yes. And the, the, actually, if you if you begin with the um, the uh, deportation in when is it 1886 of the 30,000 um, of whom uh, Bismarck's uh, deportation of po illegal Polish 
re residents in, and it's sound familiar, um, in, uh, from the four eastern counties in Prussia. Um, uh, there you have a lumping of Poles and Jews together, and they clearly, there is an, an anti-Semitic undertone of that which isn't spoken. It's actually said as being Poles, but if you actually look at them, a third of them or something are, are Jews. So yes, there, there is, but I, what I understood you to say is, was there an office that actually did this? And there is, an, there is of course, the very famous during World War I um, uh, questionnaire or whatever of, of how many Jews are serving in the army, um, which, was f which was something that, that the uh, pan-Germans and their minions had pressed for for the first two years of the war, and the, and the military had always said, we don't want to do this. And in the second in which Falkenhayn goes out and, and Ludendorff and Hindenburg comes in, they do it. Um, and uh, and then they don't release the results, which were the Jews are just like everybody else. They're, you know, they have the, the same percentage of people serving, the same percentage of people dying, and, but they never say that. Um, but that's uh, done, that's a, a single and, you know, there's no office that's already set up to do that. They have to actually, and, and that makes me think that they're not as far along in that kind of typifying as the Russians are. Um, but it's something that someone should, I, you know, the, the amount of stuff on World War I in the archives is really, really incredible. And I don't know if somebody went in and looked, maybe they'd find something. Because we keep finding the most incredible things. So it may be there. I haven't run across it. Yes? That's an excellent point. That's an absolutely excellent point. And I mean, in the course of take Roberts in Afghanistan, there's an awful lot of villages burned in, in that. But you're right. It, and that has to do very much with the British insertion of, in my view, this is the way I interpret that, the insertion in Great Britain of political goals that the military is supposed to fulfill. Whereas in the German case, it's not that they're, you know, yes, you're supposed to put down the rebellion. Um, but there is something larger going on there for the military and actually for the state, and that is that you are supposed to demonstrate German authority on the ground, and that understanding of the demonstration of that takes precedence over everything else. So if, in fact, you end up murdering the entire uh, population of labor in southwest Africa, too bad, okay? Um, and the British don't, they just don't think like that. They are very comfortable in their bigness and greatness, um, and the Germans are not. Um, it, would, it wouldn't occur to the British to imagine that for all of you to be good subjects, you had to be dead. Um, and it will occur to a German military commander that that, not to all of them, 
not to all of them, but it is something that, that is much more likely to raise its ugly head than, than is true. And that's a very good point, that the same method can be used to, to very different um, ends. Uh, in a system which is factoring in politics, economics, law, religion, public opinion, and the, the British do that not always well, but they do do it. They do try to do it. And that the same is true for France and, and, and for many of the other places. And in Germany, it is, it is less so. There are always people who want to do exactly that and who try and try and try, but it is much easier for them to be frustrated and for their, their attempts to be hindered by this overriding military view of things. It does happen. I'm. Uh, you're absolutely right. But th go ahead. Do you want to? The, the real British genocide aren't done by the military. They're done through war camps. They're done by settlers, and they're done by settlers. Yes. In Australia. That that is also a very good point. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Even in the midst of World War II, Churchill is, is not going to bother sending any food to India. But a few Dutch start dying of famine, and all of a sudden there's a, a major response, which brings me back to that. No, that's, starting, you know, that, no, that, that's an excellent point, and it is a point that, that uh, I mean, that, that, that suggests once again that genocide, like racism, um, is too big a term, and that if you really want to understand why they occur, you have to look at all the complexity involved in them. Um, and and uh, you're, you know, except for people who imagine that, you know, the dead equal the dead, um, which I think is not true. Most historians don't believe that. We think it's important how and why people died. Um, and that's uh, an excellent point. Go on. It's been fascinating. Are you ready to? Um, They're ready. <laughs> go on and have something to drink, maybe? Sure. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Again, all. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you really don't don't take German pacifism at all. I didn't want to, you know, bring that up. You really it's, no, it's.